Greetings to all of God's people out there. This is Mordecai Joseph. Uh, my purpose in giving the studies is going through the book of the law. We're going to go through it uh, verse by verse from Genesis to the last book, Deuteronomy. Uh, to begin with, uh, I'd like to go first and uh, give you an introduction to the concept of the law itself. And hopefully it is from God's point of view. I it may not be perfect, but at least uh, the understanding that uh, we have and in essence, the law of God that we're talking about is something that is far more than what uh, most people think of. In terms of human concepts of the law of God, uh, we talk about the laws of the land. Well, they're limited only to do's and don'ts, so to speak. You know, red light, you stop, green light, you go. Uh, nothing spiritual about it. Uh, you do it, you have harmony, you don't have an accident. Uh, in the law of God, it's, it is much more than that. It is the very mind, the nature of God, the personality of God the character of God, in essence, for God to represent, that is, uh, to create man in his image and likeness, he had to, to duplicate himself, duplicate his nature and character, and what he chose to do it through is his law. And his law is spiritual, his law is a living thing, his law is epitomized by himself, and by the one that later on came as the Logos, Jesus Christ, the Word, who claimed that he is not only the one that obeys the truth, but he is the truth. He is the way, and he is the path to eternity. And we can and must, and all, father, uh, all of humanity, be it Israel, be it the rest of the nations, we all must go through him, and through him means absorbing his, his mind, his nature, his character. As I said uh, later on, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will never have life in you. So in essence, I'd like to be speaking now about two journeys that we take, we all take, all of humanity had taken two journeys in this life, in our lifetime, in the physical flesh. These two journeys were described by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 19, where he's talking about two choices, the choice of life and the choice of death. And we know that all of humanity has been traveling mostly in the broad way, as Christ called it, the one that leads to death and not to life. One journey takes us and leads us through the highways and the byways, the mounds, the valleys, the side roads, so to speak, of the mind of God. This journey takes us through the law, or it is, as it is called in Hebrew, the Torah, the law of God. And by the way, the word law is not what you read in the English or any other language. In Hebrew, it has a totally different connotation, so we're going to explain that too to make it more meaningful. And so this law is called the way of life. It is a narrow road. The second one is a second journey that most humanity is taking, and we have to admit, be honest, we do it too, now and then, less and less, hopefully. Uh, that takes us in similar fashion into the mind or depth of Satan, as Paul would call it. Uh, it is traveled through the law of the flesh. Moses called it the way of death. Christ called it the narrow road. And the way of death is the Broadway. And both ways, we have to realize, are governed by law. There is either the law of the flesh or the law of the spirit. In other words, without law, nothing exists. So, to have the attitude, well, the law is done away with, it's total nonsense. For the simple reason, there is nothing that can exist without a governing law, be it a good one or a bad one. And so every seven years, God told Moses to command Israel during the Feast of Tabernacles to 
read the entirety of the Torah, that is the first five books of Moses, because that was their foundation. God wanted every single one of them to know every single word that he ever wrote and dictated to Moses, so there would be no misunderstandings, no possibility of deception, no confusion, no creation of the Babylonian spirit or Egypt of the past, so the prophets or the, the priests of the day would not be able to deceive the people, so all of Israel would know exactly the same in order to be able to reach oneness, unity with God, unity of the spirit, unity of the word of God, and unity of the knowledge. And so this story is a direct link. And we need to know what is the story and what is the direct link and the way that is linked or linking the law to the end of the road, which is the kingdom of God. After all, that was the whole purpose to begin with. Let us men make man in our image and in our likeness. Well, how? The law told the story from the beginning until the end, from A to Z. And that's one reason also why Christ called himself the Alpha and the Omega, because he is the beginner and the finisher and the author of salvation, and it is through him that, Christ, that God is doing it. So what is the law? What is the purpose of the law? In Romans 4, that is chapter 10 and verses 4 and 6, Paul is telling us that Christ is the end of the law. Uh, what does he mean by that? Obviously, he didn't read it in, uh, write it in English, so we have to explain from the point of view of what was written. What does he mean by that, spiritually, besides linguistically? He said that Christ was the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 5, he's talking about the righteousness of the law, and in verse 6, he's talking about the righteousness of faith. In either case, they're both righteousness. It's not that the righteousness which is of the law is not righteous. Both are righteous. But one is based on faith, the other one is based on human willingness to obey the laws of God apart from God. One physical, the other one is spiritual, yet both are determined by law. And so in this study we shall explore the meaning of this statement, Christ is the end of the law, because that would explain to us what the law is all about, and what was the purpose of it, what is the end result of it, what road we must travel. Or as one later on asked Jesus Christ, Master, we, what must I do? In other words, what is the road to travel, to be in the kingdom, to have eternal life? And he says very plainly, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. And he's not talking about the ten, he's talking about every commandment, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Of course, the foundation is the ten, but you cannot stop there. In Colossians 1, 26 and verse 27, we read about the hidden mystery. And what is that hidden mystery? Christ in us the hope of glory. And what does that mean? Without a background of the law, you really don't know what it means. And so those who go directly to the New Testament have no clue whatsoever. They have to invent it, of what it really means, because you have to go back to Genesis 1.26 and then read through and come to that point. Again, we can never fully understand this statement and truth without understanding its link to the statement, Christ is the end of the law, and what is it that God was doing to begin with? Now, the word end itself has a sense of termination. You know, you reach the end of the road. But when you reach the end of the road, what does that mean? Is that your end, you know, the end of your life, or does it mean that you have re reached your destination? And so, 
it also means aim or goal. This is the goal. So Christ, the end of the law, is the goal. This is the end. This is where you want to reach. This is where, uh, what you want to become. As we read in Ephesians, for example, that God gave us apostles, preachers, teachers, and uh, so forth, uh, for a purpose to uh, perfect the saints so they can all reach to the fullness, to the, me- uh, me, to the measure, to the stature of Jesus Christ. And that's the end of the law. That is, in other words, the end result or the aim or the goal of the law. First Timothy 1.1, we also read that the end of the law is charity. In other words, to be love, just God, like God is love, we have to travel the road of the law, and that is the end result of it. If you obey the law, as Paul would later on tell us, that what is love, love is the fulfilling of the law. In James 5.11, we're also told you have seen the patience and have seen the end of the Lord. So obviously it's not talking about the end of the Lord in the sense of end, no more, but the end results of walking with God or walking with Christ. In John 4.23 and verse 24, we read about the conversation that the Samaritan woman had with Jesus Christ, or rather that he had with her, and he's basically telling her that the hour will come where the true worshippers will worship God in truth and in spirit because God is spirit and is truth. So we have to know what is truth and what is the word of God and what is the law of God. As David would say, your word is truth. And Christ would say, I am the truth. We must know what is that truth he's talking about. It's not an ethereal concept. Romans 7, in verses 12 and then 14 Paul is discussing the eternal struggle of the people of God, that is, having the law of the flesh in them, wanting to walk in the law of the Spirit, and struggling one against the other. God, he said, is holy, and he's speaking about the law that it is holy, it is good, it is spiritual. And Jesus Christ told us in John 6.35, I am the bread of life, not just I have or know, or obey, but I am. And we have to be just like him. And if we eat his flesh and drink his blood, Christ will be the hope of glory in us, because we're going to end up just like him. Be you holy as I am holy, he said many times. That's what he means. By doing all those things that he gave us, that's how we become holy. Not by an ethereal concept of wishful thinking. It is a matter of not only faith, not only grace, not only love, but also obedience, and altogether is the law. Verse 25, uh, 20, uh, 41, actually, of chapter 6 of the book of John, Christ told us that he is the bread that came down from heaven. He came down from heaven, he spoke to the people of Israel in Sana, he gave them the law, he gave them the Torah. He came down from heaven again. He gave to his people the spiritual understanding of that Torah. And he commanded all of us to walk in it. Some people thought, well, he probably came to do away with it because it seems to be liberalizing all kind of things. He says, oh, no, don't think so. He says, do not think, in chapter 5, verses 17 and 19, that I came to destroy the law of the prophet. No, I did not come to do it. I came to fulfill it. And that makes it even so much more binding because now you're going to the very detailed explanation of it, spiritually speaking, the nuances and the shades of the law. And that's far more and it's far greater than the surface of the physical law written on the two tablets of stone. And so Christ is equating spiritual bread 
with his own flesh and his own blood, and we must eat it and drink it. In other words, man is to live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He did not say man must live by the New Testament. He did not live man must live by the Old Testament. These are human terminologies, not godly or biblical. He says you must live by every word that came out of the mouth of God from the beginning of the story until the end, from Genesis to Revelation. And those who eat the bread shall live forever. And so to be in the kingdom and have eternal life, we must eat. In other words, literally speaking, in a spiritual sense, we must eat what God is, what his nature is, what his character is, and all these things are defined only by his law. That was his way of describing what he is and what he wants what he wants us to be. So it is not, as some people may think, well, I'm living by grace, that's good enough. It does not work that way because to begin with, God gives his grace only to those who obey his law. And that's what he told Moses when he showed him his, his glory, as we read about it in the book of the law. He said that God is graceful, long-suffering, and merciful, but he is to those who obey his voice, who do his will, who fear him, but as low as those Others who think that they can do away with the law or live without it, he says he's going to persecute them to the second and the third and the fourth generation and hold them accountable for it. And that's in essence what he's saying. Now, there is a link between the law and the kingdom, obviously, because one leads to the other. A law is not an end in itself. It has a purpose. It is the path. It is the road. It is the way. And that's why the way of God is, is described in that terminology. It's a way that you travel until you reach the destination and the final destination is that you become just like Jesus Christ, and that's why he's the hope of glory. In Isaiah 42 and verse 21, God told us, long in advance, before he came in the flesh, that he will magnify the law, not do away with it. Magnify the Torah and make it honorable, not contemptible, as some people made it to be. It's not legalistic, it's not contemptible, it's not physical, it's not just for the old people of the past. It is an honorable magnification of the mind and the nature of God. This is the law of God. This is the mind of God. That's his character. Philippians 2.5 tells us, Therefore, let this mind be in you. What kind of a mind do you think Christ had? A lawless mind? A rebellious mind? Obviously not. He had a very abiding mind, a disciplined mind, a righteous mind, a holy mind. He obeyed his Father's commandments. To be a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, he had to be without spot and without blemish. You will never know what it means unless you know the law of God and walk in it. And we must walk in his footsteps and follow him until the end. Never, ever come into the place where we say, well, I give up. I'm not interested in keeping the law anymore. It's easier to walk in the broad way. And many do. And so they fall by the wayside. Psalm 138, verse 2. This is what David is telling us, what God thought about his words, about his law, about his teachings. He said, you have magnified your word, that is your law, above your name. What's in the name? If your character is defined by unrighteousness and lawlessness, what kind of a name do you have? And so God magnified his law above his name, because his name is based on what his law is. He is holy because he obeys the laws of holiness, he walks by them. He's not like the gods of the Greeks 
They were referred to as gods, and yet we know what kind of gods they were. All the stories that they tell about them, and it's basically all lawlessness. In James 1, 8, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, we are told that of his will he begat us with the word of truth, that is, with the law of truth. That's how he begets us. That's how he builds us. That's how character is being built. By knowing his law, walking in his law, understanding his law, and that is not just the physical, but the spiritual, the intent that goes far beyond the letter of the law. And in the process, we become the baby from a begotten sperm, and then a fetus. Finishing the process, we become a baby. Then we are born. Only then we can be born into the kingdom of God when we are all finished. And then Christ becomes the hope of glory. So many believe in his name. Well, James said, well, that sounds good. You believe in God? Wonderful. Satan does too. In other words, that doesn't mean anything to believe in his name. You must also obey him. And so many believe in his name and reject his law. It's utter impossibility if you want to be in the kingdom. And so Christ tells many who claim to, well, Lord, Lord, you are my Lord, I love you, sweet baby Jesus, and all that stuff. I live by grace, I live by love, I worship you, Jesus. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And he said it from the beginning until the end. As Paul at own will tell us. And basically, Paul being the apostle to the uncircumcision, he didn't need to tell that to the Jews because they knew it. But the Gentiles who did not know the law, he told them, I don't want you to be ignorant. Because obviously you are ignorant of certain things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, I believe, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant that our fathers, it's not your fathers, but our fathers were baptized unto Moses. They went through the Red Sea. They were baptized unto him in the cloud and uh, in the water. And they all ate the physical. He didn't say physical. No, he said they all ate spiritual. Because many nations, many peoples, and a church that calls itself the true church, call, uh, say that Israel had only physical drink or physical food or physical knowledge or letter of the law. Paul said, no. They all ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink and they all followed the spiritual rock. And that rock was Christ. So the law was always spiritual. They did not necessarily fully understand it, but they were eating it. And gradually, hopefully, some of them were getting a little bit more of it. We must remember that the law of God has always been spiritual from the beginning of the, uh, to the end. Yes, it has physical aspects, physical implications, but it is spiritual because God is spirit. And therefore, what he gave us is spiritual. And that's why Christ said, I am that bread that came down from heaven. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 11, David tells us that the law of God is a tree of life. You know, that's one of the promises to those who will overcome. God will give them of the tree of life. And if they are not willing to eat in this lifetime the fruit of the law, the fruit of the tree of life, how will he give it to them in the future? Second Timothy three fifteen to 16, we are told about the role of the law. Whereas Apostle Paul tells Timothy, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, that were able to make you wise unto salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. And so when Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, this is what he means. I am the law, I am the Torah, I personify it. And Torah, by the way, is not something that is found only in five books, 
that in essence the foundation of it. Torah means teaching. It means understanding. It means laws and statutes and judgments and precepts and testimonies and the word of God whenever it is being spoken, be it in Genesis or in Revelation. It's one book. It is one story. It is one God and one doctrine. And it's not a divided thing. People divided, even divided the chapters and the scriptures. God never did. It's a continuous utterances, oracles of God from beginning until the end. And so Christ personifies this whole teaching from the beginning until the end. And that's in essence what it means, the end of the law, or the goal, or the aim, or Christ being the end of the law, is the totality of it. And so since the beginning of time from the Garden of Eden, man has rejected the way and the journey into the mind of God in favor of the journey into the mind of another spirit. And so is man to this very day. And obviously, we must not be in that category, or else we simply will end up like everybody else. In Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 9, we are told, Seek you the Lord while he may be found. Well, how are you going to do it? It makes it very plain. Let the wicked, the transgressor of the law, forsake his way. Because there are two ways. The ways to the mind of Satan, the ways to the mind of God. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and travel my way, because I am the way. And that's the only way to do it. There is no other way. First Peter 1.22, purify your soul in obeying the truth. Truth is not something you just believe. People say, well, I believe the truth. Well, do we obey it? So we must obey the truth, and we must do it through the Spirit in sincere love. What is love? The fulfilling of the law. Of love of the brethren. And so we are commanded to love one another fervently. You can't love one another if you do not know the law that teaches you and tells you how to love your neighbor with a pure heart. So what is love? What is the definition of love? Romans 13, verses 8 and 10. All, no man, the Apostle Paul says, anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Love does no harm, in verse 10, to a neighbor or friend or mate you might aid or parent or child or anybody. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And he was not speaking in English, so he said love is the fulfilling of the Torah. That is, the Torah that was given by God, dictated to Moses on Mount Sinai, and then everything else that came later on. Royal law, we all know about it. Some people say, well, we believe in it even though we reject the law of God. Leviticus 19.18, it's speaking about the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. How? Some people think, well, I love my neighbor, so I go to his wife and make love to her. Well, that's not loving your neighbor. That's lawlessness. But the law of God will tell you when what you do is love and when what you do is not love, but wickedness and lawlessness. So it's important to go always to the law of God so we know what is the will of God. Many want to know the will of God, but are never willing to go to his law to find out what is his will. Malachi 4 and verses 4 and 6. Remember the law, the Torah of my servant Moses, God says, which I commanded. He did not invent it. And I commanded it to all of Israel and the statutes and the judgments. Not only the ten, as some people would say, well, that's what the law is, or the commandments. To begin with, the word commandments has never been applied to the, to the ten. They were called the ten words, or in Greek, the logo, ten logos. 
But commandment is everything that God tells us. God never suggests. He commands. His word is command. And so all the commandments were given to Israel. And he says, unless you do it, there is going to be an utter destruction. In other words, there will be no kingdom for the lawless. Mark 1.14, Christ said, when he came to begin preaching the future that was possible now, because he's going to pay the sacrifice and atone for the sins of humanity, beginning with his people. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. But, what did he say after that? Repent. You see, repent. Without repentance of lawlessness, there is no kingdom. Romans 8, 7, unfortunately, describes a problem that we all have, even if we are still in the church of God or spiritual or whatever it may be, we still have the same problem. There's still a little bit of carnality in us. Even Paul said, I'm carnal, sold, under sin. We're told that the physical mind, the fleshly mind, is enmity or has hatred against God. Doesn't even realize it. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be, unless we allow God to live his life in us through his law. And that is his word, and that is through his son, and that is again his word. And so, it is very important for us to remember that there is no other way into the kingdom of God without law, without the knowledge of the law. But we have to understand it from God's point of view. Moses told Israel, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that if they will walk in that path, obey the laws of, of God and commandments, they are going to have an awful lot of blessings in every way. But if they will not, there will be destruction. Well, spiritually it's the same thing. Disobedience to the law, be it the physical or the spiritual, will lead to destruction, and obedience to it will lead to blessings. Sometimes those blessings have to wait until we are resurrected. They were not all determined to be today. Even Abraham, with all of his obedience and righteousness and faith, and all the men of faith, as we read in the book, in the chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, none of them received the promises. So sometimes we have to wait. And not think that only today we are supposed to receive everything and then give up when we don't seem to be blessed. Sometimes we have to wait until the end. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Christ says about those who think that they are doing just well without the law of God. He says, many will say in that day, we have prophesied in your name, preached in your name, did many good works, and the world is full of those do-gooders and there's nothing wrong with doing good, but they're doing it apart from the law of God. They're doing it humanly. And that's not enough. So he said, they're going to say that to me, but I'm going to tell them, I don't know you. Why? Because you are lawless. You have rejected my law and you're doing it on your own, apart from my law. So God does not tolerate lawlessness. In other words, he does not tolerate another spirit, another nature, another character in his kingdom. He already has one giant spirit like that and so many others with him he's not interested in more of them so there is no compromise and that's one reason why God would never compromise with sin and even to deliver us he had to sacrifice himself that is through Jesus Christ in order to redeem us from sin there was no other way 1 John 3 4 we are told that if we Love God, we must keep his commandments. 
and that sin is the transgression of the law. And by this, John said, 1 John 2, 3, and 4, and then 5 also, by this we know that we know him. In other words, there is no other way to know him, but by this, if we keep his commandments. As David would say, great peace have all they that do his commandments, and nothing shall offend them. There is no other way to know God or walk with him but through his law. Because that's his nature. You are what you think. And if what you think is lawless, that's what you are. But if what you think is in the law, that's what you are. You are the law. And that's how you acquire the mind of God. That's his system of belief, values, character, righteousness, holiness, sanctification, all those things that are determined and explained by law. And so there are many, many other scriptures that speak about the law. And we can go on and on and on and never come to the end, because there is no end to the law of God. Jesus Christ spoke so much about the law of the Father, about the teachings, the nature, the character of the Father, that John had to put it figuratively in that way, that many other things Jesus Christ did and said that if, was, if everything was to be recorded, he said, I suppose even the whole world would not contain it. So we don't need to go on and on because even Christ had to stop someplace. But it gives you a general concept of it. So it is not a matter of only grace, as some would think, or faith. It has to be a totality of the whole thing, the law and grace. Now, with that in mind, let's go to a topic of the law itself. What does the law mean? What does the word mean? You see, if you read it in English, you really don't get the whole picture of it because the nature of the law describes what it is. The meaning of the law describes what it is, but you have to go to the original language. And so we are interested in knowing what is the law. What is the method? You see, when you have a baby, as Christ said in the beginning, and he's the spokesman, and so we know that it was Christ, because the Father never spoke to us, we never heard his voice. When he says in Genesis 1.26, all the two of them are speaking to each other, and one is voicing it, when they say, let us make men in our image, in essence they were saying, let us make babies. Now, when you make babies, you know that your babies are not going to remain babies for eternity. They're going to grow up and be just like you. And so they say, let us make babies. Well, when you have a baby, you're going to have to go through a process of maturity, of teaching, of understanding. It doesn't happen overnight. You're going to have to feed the baby and give him drink, take care of him. Uh, you're going to have to uh, exercise uh, discipline at times uh, because it is necessary, not because you had the child. Uh, all those things for the good of the baby. And so the Torah is epitomized by doing all those things for us. So it explains to us what it is, what is the process. Generally speaking, the word Torah means instruction or teaching. It doesn't mean law in the sense that you find uh, in the legalistic manner, do, don't. It is an instruction. It is teaching. It is, in essence, sometimes even just letting you know how I feel. Because that's very instructive. And God allows us many times to delve very deeply into his very mind and heart. You know how he feels about this or about that. Sometimes it could be anger or uh, compassion or mercy or affection or whatever it may be. Uh, all that is within the law. So it is not, and we should never think of the law as legalism. 
The law has a legalistic part, but the law is not just legalism. It has everything in it, and so it's important to understand what it is. Uh, the Greek used the word for law, nomos, which was borrowed from a Hebrew and Aramaic word, nomosa. In modern Hebrew, they don't say nomosa anymore. Uh, they modernize the language, they call it nimus. Uh, when you say nimus in modern Hebrew, you basically talk about civilized. Be civilized. How do you become civilized unless you obey laws of civilization that make possible for everybody to live in peace? So there are laws that govern a civilization or else it is uncivilized. It is a jungle society. It means polite. To be polite, you know when to do things, when not to do things, when to hurt, when not to hurt, when to correct, when not to correct. How to do things properly. It means well-mannered. So the concept of civilization, politeness, well-mannered, etiquette, instruction, teachings, telling people how you feel in the right way, you know, so they would walk in the righteous path. Yeah, all the things are components of the concept Torah. And so it is important that it is an all-inclusive thing, and it's not just, when you think about law, don't think about the English concept, don't think about legalism, because you're going to be extremely limited, and you are, will have a total misunderstanding of it, and Maybe that's why some people naturally develop a resentment because they think, uh-oh, somebody's going to tell me what to do and how to live my life. And it does not work just that way. It is there in a much greater way for your own good and in an affectionate manner, in a kind manner, in a gentle manner, not in a manner to club it over your head or exercise dominion authority over you. But remember what we are told many times, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It doesn't drive us, doesn't beat us over the head, it leads us. That's his goodness, that's his nature, that's his law. It is a light, it shows the way. It's up to you to walk, but he's not going to make you. He's not going to clobber you. Sometimes there comes a time when he has to do it, but that's not the general path. And obviously, when people don't walk in that, there are a lot of problems. Matthew 24, verses 12, and so forth, we're reading, uh, because iniquity abounds, that means lawlessness, that means people are uncivilized, impolite, don't have well manners, uh, don't have etiquettes, and all those things, and don't express their feelings properly, but, you know, they fly the handle, so to speak, get angry, and uh, do things they have no business doing. Well, because of that, love of many waxes cold. Broken spirits, people are hurt, brethren are separated, offenses are everywhere. And all that is because the law of God is not in their heart to teach them how to walk in humbleness, meekness, and humility, and harmony, and so forth. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if you are to have wisdom, and the law has been described also, the wisdom of God, and Moses told Israel, if you will obey my, the statutes, the judgments, and precepts, you can read it in Deuteronomy 4, then it will be your wisdom. And that's the wisdom that comes from above, not the one that comes from beneath, that is destructive, sinister, and self-serving. And so let's go now to what I call seven dimensions of the law. In other words, the word Torah. The word Torah has seven dimensions in Hebrew. And for the simple reason, when you look through the words and you analyze it, you come up with seven dimensions. Uh, at least that's the way I see it. Uh, maybe you can come up with some more, but I see basic seven 
there and the lead from the beginning of the process to the end. So Christ is the end of the law concept or Christ is the mystery of ages, the hope of glory in us, all that are within the seven dimensions. Proverbs 1.8 tells us, My son, hear the instructions of your father and forsake not the law that is the Torah of your mother. So you see a father-mother relationship. And in essence, God the Father and Jesus Christ become sort of father and mother to us. And Christ is the one that begets us, that washes our diapers, just like the mother would do to a baby. He basically fulfills the purpose of the mother, or the office of the mother. And then there is the father, and then when he's done with the job, he presents us to the father. And that's the way it works. This is the analogy. Uh, this is the metaphor. The parenthood of God and Jesus Christ is epitomized by the Torah. And so father and mother are involved. Now, why is Christ the head of the church, the head of his body, the head of his wife, and the head of his children? Well, it's because he is fulfilling all these roles to bring us to that point. So, the first instruction, I mean the first concept or the first dimension of the Torah is instruction, because that's basically generally what it means, and so many other things that are related. It means instruction. As we read before, 2 Timothy 3, 15-16, uh, where Paul tells Timothy, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. He didn't say the Old Testament. There is no such a thing. Testament is just a marriage. You see? Testament is governed by a covenant, which is the law of God. So it says, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make you wise unto salvation. In other words, you were instructed in all those things. So Torah basically is instruction. It tells you what is right, what is wrong. It tells you how to feel, how not to feel. In other words, you should feel uh, good thoughts and good, right, uh, emotional uh, uh, components that should be in your mind instead of hatred and malice and wrath and all those things which are not good. So it instructs you. It doesn't clobber you. It instructs you. You see, it's up to you to obey. God gives you the choice. Now, when you have instructions, you obviously need an instructor. You see, because that's the natural sequence and that's the way it works. That's natural. If you have instructions... You need an instructor. And who is the instructor? Now, in Hebrew, I'll give you some Hebrew words there so you can see the connotation there and the link. Instruction is hora'ah in Hebrew. That means to instruct. All those seven come, remember, from the Torah. So hora'ah is the first one. An instructor in Hebrew is more. Again, coming from the word Torah. And who is our instructor? The instruction we all know, that's the law of God, not the law of men, not the opinion of men, not the words of men, not the explanations of men, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the ultimate instructor, obviously, is the Father, and then Jesus Christ, and then the parents, and then the one that come under the parents, not instead of the parents, as unfortunately some people have done. Now, what is the office, what is the purpose, what is, so to speak, the obligation of the instructor? Simply, to instruct. You know, the simplicity in Christ. You can find it throughout the seven dimensions. It's a very simple process. You don't have to be a spiritual giant to understand it. You don't have to go to a seminary or a school or this college or that university or go, or go to the great and the giant and all that. And never have to feel that you are beneath or that you are unable, or that you are incapable. God made it very simple, so the children can understand. 
And so, the third dimension is to instruct. In Hebrew, it's, it's lehorot, which means to instruct. Again, you see the similarity to the word Torah, because it comes from it. And what are they to instruct? Obviously, only the words of God. And so, you must prove everything. Don't ever believe anyone. Prove all those things to see whether they be of God. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. If you don't know Christ, you don't know his mind, you don't know his law, how would you know that the one who is instructing you is following Christ? So that's your obligation, and it's not his, the instructor. It's your obligation, the, the one being instructed. So it goes both ways. Now, the fourth dimension, we need to know the identity of the instructor. I already mentioned that earlier. I'll repeat that again. Now that somebody is supposed to instruct because he is the instructor and he's using the instruction of God, we need to know his identity. As I said, first and foremost is the Father. From him proceed all things. It is his commandments that the one that became Christ obeyed. He says, I didn't come to do my own thing. I came to obey the commandments of God. Whatever he told me to do, that's what I do. Whatever God told Moses to write, that's what he wrote and said. Whatever he tells us, the parents, this is what we must do, not invent our own concepts, not bring our background, not bring the instructions of others which are not biblical, but we must, again, all defer to Christ who defers to the Father. And the fourth one, and that's number four, and it's not number one or two or three, it's number four. After the Father and Christ and the parents, as we are told otherwise, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of men, and then man is the head of the wife, and of course the head of the children. And you cannot change that order. Many people do, and we have problems when they do. And so the number four is a spiritual teacher. And the spiritual teacher would be, in old times, the priesthood, the Levites, and the men that God chose later on, the ones that God calls and gives them the gift of teaching, not the self-appointed one, as Paul said, how can they teach unless, or how can they be sent, or how can they preach unless they be sent? In other words, uh, as James would say, otherwise don't be many masters. Let God call you and uh, don't pretend that he did when he did not. So it's important for us also to prove, did he really call me or am I doing my own thing? Well, by the, fr by the fruits we finally we are going to know that. So it's important to investigate all these things. And so we have the Father, that is, we have the identity of the instructor. And we know that it is God, Christ, the parent, the spiritual teacher. And then we sharpen one another, too. And now we go to the fifth dimension, which is the natural consequence. You know, the identity of the instructor. What is it that the instructor is doing? What is his purpose? His purpose is to impregnate your mind with the truth. As Paul would say, I begot you, or I fathered you in Christ, you see? And that's the purpose of the instructor, is to impregnate you. But he's not to impregnate you with his own ideas or concepts, as the manner of many is. He's to impregnate you with the word of God. So, still, you're going back to the Father. And that's how you keep the purity of the Spirit, the purity of the truth. You always have to check, well, what is it? Where did it come from? Who said it? Can I really prove it? Because this is going to make you what you are. And you do not want to be made of two different spirits or several spirits that are all confused. 
That's why there is a lot of confusion, and that's why people are in Babylon. And so it's important to know what is it that is going to impregnate, impregnate us with, that is the teacher. And so that's the fifth dimension. Now, what is the natural consequences when you impregnate? Well, the one that was impregnated becomes pregnant. You're pregnant now with the truth, with the word of God, with the law of God. That's a natural consequence. This is when you're conceived, you see. But, obviously, as nature teaches us, so is the plan of God. Just because you've been conceived doesn't mean that immediately you're ready to be born. You have to go through a process. That process is called pregnancy or herayon in Hebrew. To impregnate means laharot. And herayon is the process which is pregnancy. You see the natural consequence. You see the simplicity in the whole process. You see why God is begetting us the way he does. Why does he allow us to be able to reproduce ourselves in the manner that we do instead of just being cloned? You see? He doesn't clone us. He doesn't reproduce us where we split and re-split and all that. He does it in the process that signifies the very manner in which he's going to make man in his own image and in his own likeness. And so all those things are related, and the word Torah basically explains all these dimensions. And so the end of the process is what? When you went through the process and endured until the end, and you have eaten the flesh of Christ and drunk his blood, you became him, so to speak, he became the hope of glory in you, now you are ready to be born. That's when the resurrection comes about, and then you have fulfilled the statements that Christ is the end of the law, and the mystery where Christ is the hope of glory. And that is the mystery of ages, and that's what the law or the Torah is all about. Well, basically, this is what Christ went through. We're going to go through the same process, and that's what the meaning of the Torah is all about. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions?